Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Vatia. Thanks so much uh, for joining the Soft Robotics Podcast. Uh, first of all, I would like to ask you to introduce yourself and how you would like uh, to define yourself. Well, uh, hello, Marwa. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Hello to everyone listening. Uh, my name is Vito Capucciolo. I am a scientist at EPFL, which is the, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in uh, Lausanne. Um, I work there in um, Professor Herbshay's lab, it's called the Substance Users Laboratory. I am a mechanical engineer and roboticist by training. Uh, I received my bachelor and master from um, Politecnico di Bari, which is a young technical university in the south of Italy, it's not very well known yet, um, and from uh, New York University in the US, that was part of a double degree. And I got my PhD from uh, Scuola Superiore Sant'Anna in Pisa, uh, in Italy. This is a well-known university for robotics. I was in uh, Cecilia Lasky's group, uh, and there I started actually my part in, uh, in soft robotics. Yeah, a few words about my research, like now, what are my research interests? Um, so I'm focusing on uh, soft artificial muscles and soft grippers, kind of two independent projects, but with a lot of common points. I like artificial muscles because I believe they are the bottlenecks for, to make soft robots useful. And um, while for soft grippers, well, they are, they are arguably one of the few soft robotics technologies that is mature enough for market application. I'll, I'll make a bit of kind of publicity. I, I recently received the, the Bridge Fellowship for, uh, for, for this project, which is a funding from the Swiss government to bring academic innovation to the market. I'm very happy about this because I'm, I, I, I have now the opportunity to work on soft robotics, but more on technology transfer in parallel to more fundamental research. And this brought a lot of new challenges and exciting opportunities. I think that's very interesting that what you're doing, I think that's actually what we need in academia in general, or maybe in soft robotics, how we can transfer what we do in the lab. But before going to that, I'm curious to go for your childhood, because I think childhood plays a significant role in how it could shape your interest so do you have any kind of memories be interested in science or technology as a kid? Any memories about that? Well, my, my answer is probably slightly disappointing because as a kid, well, for technology, no. I, I was never a technology enthusiast. I was in love with books, um, kind of any kind of books, but especially books about animals. So this is kind of scientific if, we, if we'd like. Uh, so I used to know all the names and characteristics of these of these animals and to bother all the all my parents and relatives asking them questions that they mostly wouldn't know the answer for. Uh, so I love nature a lot. I, I would say way more than technology. The interest for robotics came only later in the years. And if I think of the first first robots I came in touch with probably this is well as most people from my from my generation this is from uh, Japanese anime series. So, do you remember what is the first soft system, or maybe soft robot you built? And do you remember when that was? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, this came quite late. Uh, it was it was during my PhD, in fact, and not even at the beginning because I started working on um, modeling and then soft robotics components rather than full robots. So the first full robot was not part of my main PhD thesis, PhD part, but it was more it was part of a PhD course that I was taking uh, with uh, with uh, Cecilia Lasky, um, and. For this course, we were supposed to, to, to build a robot as part of a project. So we made this quadruped robot with the pneumatic legs, um, with the legs that could be adapted, reconfigured based on the, on the different terrain the robot was moving on. So whether it was a flat terrain or a very rough one, we could call the configuration of the, lab, of the legs and have a different guide kind of emerging. And I mean, designing and building this robot was very fun and, and fulfilling. It's, it was highly creative. Like I would say, that the scientific insight was kind of limited because it was part of a project. It was not like we were not going necessarily for for a publication. So we had a lot of freedom. Uh, but it was exciting to create, you know, a machine that would move following our instructions, but somehow in some unexpected ways. We didn't know completely how the robot would interact with the terrain, how the legs would interact with it. So we would kind of observe how the robot would behave and then define the actuation pattern and the configuration of the legs based on, 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 on the performance, on the speed of the robot. So it was kind of something in between engineering, so designing and building the robot, and then more kind of science, more kind of on the bi biological level where you observe you observe a creature and you try to synthesize how it's behaving. And then there was engineering again to take this, this learning and use it to improve the robot. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Maybe I'm just ask you, and that's a question we ask all the time. What do you think may be um, the definition of soft robotics? When you have this kind of experience, what do you think the maybe accurate definition from your perspective? And what do you think may be the most important question we have to consider while embarking in soft robotics research? Uh, well, I, I tend to use a very simple definition, which is making robots or robots components using soft materials and or smart materials. I, I stress soft components because I believe there is limited use for fully soft robots. Uh, that's my opinion. Uh, I imagine that the future of the field is in developing specific components, which can be sensors and actuators, but also different kind of components, and integrating them with rigid components such as skeletons, microprocessors, cameras. So I think one, one important question for, for the field and for people who now start working in the field is what soft components can truly outperform rigid counterparts? And also how do we design robots integrating these soft components and rigid counterparts that we want to keep rigid because it's better to have them that yeah. so maybe i'm curious to ask you maybe what this area or direction of research you think is very promising but the community seems still disagree or doesn't get much attention you mentioned the first part that how we can combine the soft and rigid part and some example of that sometimes we want to get rid of this kind of like microprocessor and we wanted to go for intelligence in the material so that material can compute its um, actuation and sensing, for example, an ionic conductive polymer. So from your 
perspective, do you think that uh, what the thing is still, you, know, you think is very promising, but the community doesn't give much attention? Well, I, I, I can't say for sure if it's very promising, but something I, I am now very much interested, interested in, and I think it would, it would probably, it's kind, yeah, it's kind of important for, for, for the future of the field, is this integration of soft and rigid components. So I, I, I believe it's what is challenging for soft robotics is its multidisciplinary nature. This is something that makes soft robotics interesting, exciting, but also makes it difficult to develop, especially when we want to move to higher TRL, so to make more complex systems. Because a team to that wants to develop soft robots need a wide range of expertise, sometimes ranging from chemistry to material science to um, robotics engineering, control, mechanical engineering. And so when this is within a team, it already makes the team complex to, to build and to make the different expertise communicate. If we take a look at the community level, then that's even more challenging because we need to convince people from different communities to engage in efforts to solve problems for soft robots. So I, I think this is a challenge for the people. We, 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 need, we need to kind of, so, kind of sort out how we involve and coordinate between different communities, or scientific communities. Yeah. But uh, there's a question here. First of all, based on what you say, where do you see something is lacking now? If you see that we don't have enough, maybe because it's interdisciplinary, where do you see still something? Like, for example, we have this question about uh, the material science development and uh, from robotics perspective, sometimes we ask whether we have to go for designing a new material with new functionalities. Uh, and as a side, how we can use, for example, architected compliance and taking into account modeling and deep understanding the morphology and the shape and how that could affect the material or be soft system behavior. And the other side, why do you think maybe there's this still kind of lacking of um, effective uh, collaboration? If we speak that we have a problem like uh, reproducibility, or maybe we don't have a design recipe, or we don't have enough modeling techniques. So where does this come from, do you think? Mm, I believe it, a bit it comes from the fact that we don't have we don't have clear applications. Most of soft robotics so far has been curiosity-driven, which is fantastic. It, it created a lot of super interesting, exciting machines that, that we, we have robots now that have a completely different shape to what we would have imagined um, something like 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, but that's so that's, that's all right for people working on soft robotics. Um, but when we want to involve people from different communities, taking a large effort in using their expertise to help, for example, developing new materials, then it's a problem not to have a clear application because yeah, people or researchers or companies won't take the effort of creating, starting a, a new research line if there is no clear direction, no clear application for this research line. Uh, that's why I, I go back to what I was saying at the beginning. I think it's important now that more and more people start working on higher TRL systems and start trying to address market questions. It, it doesn't have to be the whole community, but we need some people to start doing this uh, so that, that there is more clear applications we can, 
we as, uh, as people working in soft robotics and also nearby communities can focus their effort on. Yeah, I think that's really interesting board what you mentioned. And uh, when I'm looking to, uh, I, today I was looking for some reports about uh, who are the key players for soft robotics uh, uh, industry. And there are a few companies, but when I look to generation or iteration for developing, for example, soft gripper uh, uh, for picking fruit, for example, that's the most dominant example, an exoskeleton as well for uh, human safety at workplace. Mm-hmm. Still, it's like take many years. So, for example, if we have like six years, do you think, and that's a question we have, do you think in an academia perspective that we still working in a short term, maybe so that we can publish, we don't have to go further and see the limitation or maybe still how it will work in a in like life cycle, for example? So, um, I, I agree with you. I mean, as researchers, we, we, we need to publish, so and that, that, that's great. So we, we can't expect each person working in soft robotics to answer a market need. Uh, but we could imagine teams uh, like professors, uh, institutions, laboratories to start kind of pushing for higher, um, higher TRL projects uh, and so start collaborating with industries, start writing proposals that uh, address a specific technological or market need, and then have a whole team. They, 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 they can do that because they, they have a whole team where then each individual researcher has just to do a little piece and, and will get his publication, but that little piece will then be a part of a larger effort to, to, to develop. Um, to develop a technology that can be used in, well, in five years, perhaps, uh, and not necessarily just some proof of concept. Proof of concepts are great. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not against those. Um, I'm just saying that for the field to now, we need to move to a, to a further maturity um, stage. And so we, we, we need some subjects to, to start taking the risk um, and, and moving a step forward towards uh, towards ma- towards the market, I- I'm a bit doing this now. So I I I, I was very lucky because in um, now in this part of my career, my the head of the lab, uh, Professor She, he gave me a lot of freedom um, to, to to follow my my, my research interests and a lot of trust. So I could at the same time develop some more basic research. Um, that's the stretchable pump you were you were mentioning. Uh, so it's more fundamental research but also work on this project that had, had been already established in the lab before I joined about, about soft grippers. And there I could, I could work on the top of a technology that was already proved. So the proof of concept was already done. And since the lab is well organized, there is a good continuity of technology. So I could take all that, those results and, and start to build more, more reliable systems, something that, could, that was more, more mature and could could be used to to go to companies, talk to them, and ask, uh, "Do you need this? Can can this solve some problems for you?" Mm-hmm. I really like this point what you mentioned because that's also something we discussed in the podcast about the risk in ideas. And sometimes, if you want to do disruptive idea, vs incremental work. So, for your example, you're still a junior um, researcher, uh, and still you have a lot of I think interesting work coming for you. So. 
But I'm curious to ask you in this moment, because you proved yourself from your paper, for example, uh, structural bombs, for example, how you managed to get uh, maybe a risky idea and still you, it's work? Because some researchers, they're afraid to go outside the mainstream because of the risk. Maybe you don't get publication and that affects you to get funding. How do you see this kind of this um, problem here that I'm afraid to go for new ideas? I just want to be to play in the safe side and do what have been done so far and just to me tweak uh, a little in, in this idea so that I can assure that I will have a publication and maintain reproducibility or maybe production of uh, mm-hmm. my research. So uh, it's it's rare to be honest to find, uh, but I don't know how is this experience for you. Of course, you have this freedom and trust, but um, as you, when you do this idea, how you figure out, uh, do you have kind of fears or how you make sure it will be su- successful for you? Oh, it's a good question. And I absolutely don't have the answer. Uh, I, I wondered myself many, many times, is it a good choice? Or not? Well, I, I, I have to admit, probably the single most important element uh, for me has been the team. I've been surrounded by people, my, my, my supervisor, but on also the other collaborators that believed in me, believed in the idea, and gave me support uh, on a daily basis, um, helping me uh, go over the challenging times, but also giving me this feedback that that this, the idea was worth keep pushing. I, I would honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll be completely open. I would have never believed myself as as a junior, as a junior researcher, just just after the PhD, to judge if the idea just by myself alone was worth pushing. But I I, I believed in the idea. At the same time, I I needed feedback from from a number of people that were around me, that were. Um, that, that, that were very open uh, to, to for, for discussion and for giving me their feedback, and this was essential. So it was really a teamwork. I, I was the kind of the driving force behind it, uh, do most of the daily work. But without the team, this w- would not have been possible. I, I would have never done a, such a challenging, uh, high risk idea if I didn't have those people with me. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. So I'm curious also to ask you, in your research, you combine working from passive material to smart material, like the polymer as well. So I'm curious to ask you, what do you think maybe is the optimum material? Or if you think about what kind of material you aspire to have, and do you think as a community, we have to move from passive material to towards more smart material? Well, I, I, materials are extremely important for soft robotics, and I think the, well, we, we need specific materials for specific applications. Uh, I, I tend to work on smart materials, uh, so both, both for the pump and also for the work, for the work on the gripper. Um, those are all smart materials where they, they, they have electrodes inside, they are electrically driven, um, so they are a combination, if we want, of materials that can 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 do something, can, can do some action in response to an, an electrical uh, st- stimulus. Um, I, I think it's, it's extremely important now to start having materials that are specific to soft robotics applications, whether it's for, for just passive body materials or for active smart materials. So far, we have been mostly using adapting materials that have been developed for different uses and different applications. And I think it's now time, if we want to push forward the field, to have 
materials that are developed for soft robotics. And I mean really polymers that are kind of synthesized with the right properties for soft robotics. Like I, I, can, I can give more details for more specifically what I work on. Um, most of the devices that I develop are based on capacitive actuators, uh, whether it's the electrical astomer actuators or yeah, similar and deep, dipping kind of actuators. They are all based on the fact that we essentially we have high force if we have high capacitance because the force is given by the by the Maxwell stress. So we we tend to we tend to have to to want material that can be made in thin films and that have large breakdown strength and high electrical permittivity. And those are surprisingly hard to find, especially if we want them to be soft. So we tend to be creative and yeah, kind of mix things together, uh, create, take particles and mix uh, particles with polymers. Um, so we do what we can. We are not in, I am not a material scientist. Also in, in our lab, we are not material scientists. Uh, we use materials more than develop materials. So it would actually be great to have, so I don't know about the ideal material, but have materials that, have, that are synthesized and developed for, for our class of applications. So maybe I'm curious to ask you this question in, the, in this regard about smart material. For example, when you design, for example, for example of stretchable bump for a student may be interested in, the first uh, step in designing the smart material, how the communication is going with material science, how you tell them that's what I'm looking for. Well, for example, when you start this idea, I want to do X, Y, Z, and that what I imagine. How we figure out this would be the significant parameter in design, or this is the morphology I'm looking for. So how would, how would, how would, is it challenging for you to design um, uh, such a system with using a smart material in that case? Yeah, how it was it challenging for you and the design process, how it goes for you? Yeah, it's the, the design space is huge. So the, the first, the first consideration I should should say is that it highly depends on our understanding of the phenomenon. So, for example, if we talk about the electrical astomer actuators, for these ones, we now have a pretty clear understanding of the physics. We have simple models that explain very well what is going on. So in that case, it's fairly easy to talk to a material scientist and say, look, I want a material that can be made in tin films, and that is soft, and that is as high breakdown strength, high electrical permittivity. So parameters are well clear there. So it's possible to interact with material scientists. It's I, I go back to the previous concept. It's another story whether or not we can convince them to take the effort to 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 research on these materials. For that, we we need also a clear application and a path for the technology. Um, but then I, I move back. Um, if we uh, if we have instead a more novel technology, like for the stretchable pumps, what we use is called electrohydrodynamics. That's a much less understood physical principle. It's very complicated. There is a lot playing on, playing in it. There is electrochemistry. There is fluid dynamics. Uh, there is electrophoresis. So it's, it, it's really complex to understand and there is still a lot of fundamental research that needs to be done before we have a model that gives us all the different 
scaling laws. So for that, we well, there, there, there is a lot of kind of physical intuition. So we know more or less what kind of parameters we need. Uh, we look at literature. We try to take a look at similar systems or systems that use a very close similar principle but have been developed in different fields, like for electrodynamics. There has been efforts, for example, for cooling supercomputers that have been done a few years ago. This has nothing to do with actuation, has nothing to do with soft robotics, but looking at those papers, it was possible to have a starting point for materials and then start using those ones. Um, so then there, yeah, there is also a bit of trial and error. I can't, I can't really uh, hide that uh, because it's, it's in an early stage. But then I imagine also for this, maybe in five years, after we will have a better understanding that we have the scaling laws, we have the fundamental equations. So at that point, it's easier to talk to material scientists. In Gerstos Q, since you have this expertise, I think that's a question also we ask in the field. For example, we speak about uh, ionic conductive polymer in that case, or polymers in general. Um, we witness sometimes there is a trade-off between the mechanical performance and the response time. So if you would like to have a high forces, sometimes it would be very slow and vice versa. Do you think it is like definite to have a trade-off in designing smart material? You can't get all the functionalities. Or may, of course, it depends on the context of application, but if we want high forces with high speed, why is it not still possible to do that, for example, with any conductive polymer? Do you have any experience like that? This is kind of the trade-off, and you ever wondered why I can't get the same functionality at this, with the same desired constraint you have in your system? Hmm, well, I think it depends. I, I don't know much about ionic conductive polymers, so I can't say much on those. But I may, I, I, for what I know, there is situations where we really hit the, the, the limits of the physics for the materials. Um, for example, we know that when we increase the dielectric permittivity of a material, necessarily we decrease the breakdown strength. Well, not all the times, but there is, there is kind of a, of a threshold over there that we hit and we can't, we can't go forward. Um, or uh, for our liquids, for example, that we use for, for the stretchable pumps, um, again, there, if we want to have liquids with higher permittivity, generally those have either more conductive, electrically conductive, which we don't like, or more viscous, which we also don't like. Um, and there is, there is something intrinsic to the, to the physics, because for higher permittivity, for example, we need long molecules. And if we have long molecules, then we tend to have a viscous liquid. So there is sometimes those kind of trade-offs that depend just on really on the physics. Well, other times it's just because we we are still early in research and we don't have enough understanding. Um, again, the materials are adapted rather than developed specifically for the applications we, we do in soft robotics. And so for those, I think it's just a matter of time. Uh, those trade-offs are now, uh, we have them nowadays, but perhaps in, in, in 10 days, we will go well beyond them. Uh, because what you mentioned, essentially, response time and force, well, that's essentially the power. Uh, so, in fact, for, for us, for in, in our lab, when we design a, a new actuator, we always look at the power density. Because this gives us, essentially, the product of the tool, right? The product of, of the response time 
and the force. And if we have higher power density, no matter what, we are happier. Uh, that there is no trade-off required, right? We are just happier. Then once we have a higher power density actuator, then we can tune it based on the application. We can choose something with higher force or we can choose something with, with faster response time. And, and, and if I can add something on this, I, I think that's also one reason why people like fluidic actuators, uh, both in soft robotics, but also in general, if we think at hydraulics, that's widely used. And I think the reason is because using fluids enables, enables us to design the system independently from what the transducer is, what the pump is. We can always design the transmission and then the final actuator to have either higher force or higher speed because that's essentially the power. The power is constant and then just based on essentially the sides of, of the area where, where, where the fluid is acting for a fixed flow rate, then we can get something that deforms faster or that if it's, if it's a larger area that provides a larger force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, yeah. So maybe I would like to ask you about, again about the nonlinearities in, in, in your system you develop. And I think that's now, I think that's uh, something I think the community started to focus on, how we can couple the geometric and material nonlinearities so that we can get this interesting deformation or functionality. What's your thought about nonlinearities and how you can access them in your system and figure out whether it could be beneficial mm-hmm. or not? Yeah, it's a complex question. I'll, um, so this brings me back to my, my PhD work, uh, because in the, in, in the last years I've, I've not been working that, that much on, on modeling and control, um, but more on, um, more on um, developing actually uh, smart materials, soft actuators or grippers. So in this case, essentially we don't really mind nonlinearities, whether they are there or not, it's not especially important. Well, well, if we look at control, there indeed it's a, it's it's a very exciting and interesting um, kind of field within soft robotics how to model and exploit nonlinearities um, to have to have interesting behaviors essentially uh, that those can be used for computation or they can be used to to amplify to amplify actuation. There is there is, a, there is interesting works done by people on that. So my, my take is that, well, at a certain point, it's, it's good. We, we need to understand them and we need to model them. I think we now have the tools to model nonlinear materials. That's, that's really not, I mean, it's not easy, but we can do that. We have the tools. So then once we understand the nonlinearities and we model them, then we can decide what to do uh, for, for, a, for, for a control perspective. So we can design some creative controller that, kind of uses the nonlinearity to, it, to its advantage, or we can just design a controller that essentially linearizes point by point to, to move from a, from, a, from a point A to a point B. I think both approaches are valid. It's, well, I, I imagine the first one, so kind of exploiting the nonlinearity is more fundamental research and can lead to some creative output, while the approach to just linearize point by point, uh, it's more applied, high TRL approach that is, can be used if we want something reliable and also computationally efficient. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. But do you think in that case, uh, maybe we have to be limited to certain material that could give us this beneficial non 
Because I don't know, do you think all the material can really uh, um, be submissive to this rule that we can find or access this beneficial non-inertis? Well, it depends on the materials. It also depends on the system. If It depends also what kind of nonlinearities we are talking about. Because there, there exist different ones. There exist materials nonlinearities. There exist geometrical nonlinearities. So if, we can say that generally speaking, if we, have, we need large deformations in both cases, like materials that deform like metals in the elastic regime, they tend to have no material nonlinearity. They are linear until... Um, until plastic regime and since the formation is very small also geometrical nonlinearities tend to be quite limited unless we go then depends on scale which is very funny right if we go at really microsystems at that scale even metals can deform can have geometric nonlinearities because the, the strain is very small to get for example a bending because the thickness becomes extremely small and we, even we, if we are still in the linear material regime, then we can get geometric nonlinearities just because the, the, the structure, if we think about, for example, a cantilever beam, the structure can bend enough to have the point of application of the force to change significantly. And that's, for example, a geometric nonlinearity. Um, uh, if we go back to soft robotics, which is generally the macro scale, then I imagine most of the materials that we use can have can lead to geometric nonlinearities because they tend to deform a lot, and most of them also most of most of elastomers have in fact also materials nonlinearities. Uh, then whether actually I don't think most of those are useful to anything; they are just there. Then designing a material to have useful nonlinearities for this, I think we have to, for example, use composites more. If I think about embedding fibers in an elastomer, uh, those fibers can be can be relaxed and then stretch after. That's, for example, a way to have a very soft material until a certain point that then becomes very stiff after after a certain region. And that's that's something that we see in polymers, but it can be even enhanced if we do if we design a composite where the fibers can can change orientation. Those fibers are eventually much stiffer than the polymer. So there is ways to properly design a material if you want a certain nonlinearity. But I would kind of reverse the question. Like, what, are, what kind of nonlinearities do we need? I, I, I can't think of many of those for practical applications. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not working much on control these days, even if it, it interests me a lot. But you know, one of those that I can think of is, can think of is uh, variable stiffness. Uh, which can also be passive, right? Like the example I was making, if we have a material that becomes, that is very soft until a certain point and then becomes extremely stiff, well, there are applications where this is useful uh, for, for a gripper, for example. Yeah, I, I, I would like to stop again the point you mentioned about how we can design, for example, activities that can be in a certain regime, elastic and then stiffer. How do you see the approach, how we can, for example, if we want to, to minimize or maximize the stiffness at certain design space and how we can distribute them? Have, have you ever uh, think about uh, how we can uh, the, um, design the shape of certain parts will be, be compliant, other will be stiff? How do you see this distribution and how you figure out these parts could be compliant, this could be stiff? 
and how you can get the insight that would lead to something interesting for you in terms of functionality. If we talk about passive um, kind of variable stiffness, um, then I think that, well, from my experience as a mechanical engineer in, by, by training, what I would think of, think of is essentially using geometry. Again, we know that if we make slender structures, like fibers, the bending stiffness tend to be much lower than the stretching stiffness. So we can, we can have structures that are, are initially folded. This can be fibers within a material, or it can be, even be just the whole device designed that way. So initially, when you start pulling, you have unfolding, and then after the whole structure has been unfolded, then you need to be to stretch if you want to keep pulling. That's a that's a way to design a, a system that has this intrinsic variable stiffness. So you have initially low stiffness, and then it becomes very very large after. Actually, most of the stiffness, most of the system in nature that behave like this have this same 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 system at the at the base all polymers also work this way all most of the linearities in polymers are due to this due to the fact that initially the, the the molecules are all folded then after they they fully unfold then you need to stretch the molecule if you want to deform any further so i, I yeah i think that's that's a very practical way to design this then and, and a, a different approach is to have active variable stiffness well that's very different right? there, there is plenty of methods where we can we can give an input to the system to the material or to the, to the robot and make make it stiffness change in response to that input yeah, yeah that's interesting indeed also an ionic conductive bomb is the same example that we have variable stiffness yeah and i think that's very fascinating to have the that feature in, in, in polymers yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I would like to ask again about the control because you're saying it is you're interested in that, although you're not active these days. But I think I would like to ask this question for you because how do you see the use of traditional control for soft robots? So, for example, we ask whether we have to incorporate morphological computation and figure out what could be the most significant parameter that can enhance the control design. and. There are, other, there are also some opinion that we can still use traditional control for a modular structure, or maybe we can use also model-based techniques. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how do you see this kind of different opinions? And if, if we answer the question, the previous question, if we can really uh, access the beneficial geometric and material nonlinearities, do you think that could be replace the controller at all? Well, my, yeah, that, that's a complex and highly debated topic. Um, my take on this is I, I, I think we have the tools to create models for soft robots. And we could use these models to control them. However, well, this is doable, but it's somehow sometimes challenging because these models tend to be slow computationally. So they can more be used for design really than for control or they can be used eventually to train a machine learning controller that's a very practical use of a of a model uh, because we need otherwise it takes forever to train it just on the robot so it can be helpful to use a, a model to train it initially uh, but otherwise i think more traditional controllers they can be used if adapted in, in smart ways there is there is 
fascinating work by, 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 by people that kind of combine, if you think about, for example, uh, using, using Kalman filters, uh, there is ways to, com to combine a model with, with um, uh, sensor data and, and to, uh, to, have, to have some, yeah, some always point-to-point -point linearization and to use more traditional approaches to, co to control even soft robots. But again, I'm not, not expert on this. What, what I would say is that for, for me, like my take on morphological computation and mechanical intelligence is not that much on control, it's more on design. I try to make myself clear. Uh, like I think we, what a, a big advantage of, of having soft robots is that we can simplify control in the sense that we don't need sometimes to have a precise control because the system is, the design and the materials of the system are solving the problem for us. I make I make an example for 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 the soft grippers I work on. Those are those are grippers made with soft fingers that use electro adhesion. So in these cases, since we use electro adhesion, it's like if we have a glue that we can turn on and off electrically. So we and the fingers are soft at the same time. And when we turn on electro adhesion, the soft fingers can adapt to the shape of the object. So what this means is. One, we don't need force sensors. So we don't need a model, because if we need to use force sensors, we also need a model that tells us what this force means. We don't need, we don't need the position control. We don't need strain sensors, because we don't care how much those fingers are folded, because we are not worried if we are to apply too much input. Like we, once we approach the object, our fingers touch it, and we turn on the voltage, what happens all the time, oh, well, not all the time, most of the times, is that by electro adhesion, the fingers conform to the shape of the object. There is no too much in that case. There is no too much force because the force is just an adhesion. So essentially the force just depends on the weight of the object once we pull it. Otherwise there is no force. There is just attraction that makes the two systems connected, bonded one to the other. So we, in that case, we don't need much sensing, so we don't need much control. We only need to know the position, to position the gripper on the robot. Oh, sorry, sorry. To position the gripper on the object and then to turn on the voltage. So I think that's an example of how we can use mechanical intelligence because these smart materials plus soft finger, smart materials in this case, I intend the, the electro adhesion which is embedded in the finger, solve a, a big problem for us, which is the one of finding the right position. If we use a more traditional robotic hand, we have to fine-tune the position of the hand respect to the object. We need to know the shape of the object. We need to know how we move the hand and how much force we are applying because we don't want to crush the object. And even what are the point of application of the force because we don't want the object to slip, to, 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 we don't want to, to lose it by applying the force in, in the wrong points. So, yeah, that's, I think, it's a clear example of how we can use soft robotics to solve control. Dramatically, I would say, because controlling robotic hands is quite challenging. That's really excellent answer. I would like us uh, thank you for this uh, detailed and excellent answer. But I would like to step okay. again in, in the modeling, because you stressed about modeling. Do you think modeling is really underappreciated in the field? I think, yeah, it was, it was a bit the case, something like five, five, five years ago when I started my PhD, uh, modeling was a bit of a niche in soft robotics, but now I see more and more my my colleagues um, developing exciting models and a nice community 
being formed around modeling and control for soft robotics. So I actually believe it's a, it's now a, a rising uh, field in soft robotics. It's exciting, it's expanding, and um, yeah, it, it became became a good part of the community. There is indeed people who, since we are not still at the robot level, it's true that for people just developing actuators and sensors, well, control is not a big issue, right? We did, if we are just developing an actuator, we don't care about control. But that's kind of normal. The, because control is more something related to the, to, to the whole robot system. So I, I believe once we, once the, the research starts being more about systems than about individual components, then control will, will play more. So there will be more integration between the people working on the hardware and the people working on control. So I'll close and have a few questions. The first one, what are the challenges you still face? Or maybe you still have a crazy idea you want to do. If you can tell us about the challenges, maybe, or crazy ideas you think, you think about. Uh, well, I don't know if, how much a crazy idea it is. I think it's I, I'm probably not very good with crazy ideas. Um, uh, but I, I, would, I, I think it, it would be great for the field to have artificial muscles units that can really replace servo motors. Like in, in traditional robotics, servo motors are, are fantastic, right? We, we can just buy one, we, we plug in to, to an Arduino, to a simple microcontroller, and here we go, we have movement. We can, we can move it, we can control it. It's really the building block of any robot. We can think about the cheap ones that we can buy for, for 10 francs, for, for, sorry, sorry, for 10 euros or 10 dollars. Or we can think of the more fancy ones that go in high-end uh, high robots that are kind of customized. And, um, but in, in all cases, it's the same building block. I think I, I, I envision that this would, would, would be a disruptive technology for soft robotics. Once we, we obtain artificial muscles that are kind of self-contained, they have already their electronics on board. And so we just have to plug them to a microcontroller and a battery and they can, they can work and people can use them without having to develop them. Now, people that want to build soft robotics have to make their own actuators. That's very challenging. And it's making the field, I mean, it's, it becomes very difficult to, to build a, a whole robot, as you can easily imagine, if you have to go step by step, from, starting from scratch. But if you could buy an artificial muscle, which is soft, and you could integrate this with a, with other robotic components and build a, whole, build, a, build a whole robot, then it would be easier to, to, to go working for full robotic systems with sensors that can, can actually do what com more conventional robots today do. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you, yeah. So maybe I would like to ask this audience question, ask us this question of time about how, why, why is the translation of soft robotics to industry so challenging? Is it because of manufacturing process or modeling of soft robots? And where do you think the breakthrough is missing? You touched it about that in the beginning, but if you can tell us, mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts why it's challenging and where the breakthrough is missing? Um, well, I, I go again to, to what I said in the beginning. I think one main problem is that we, we don't have those many market applications. Like I, at least I'm not aware of many of them. The ones that I know so far are soft grippers and haptics. Uh, here I see clear applications for, for, for soft robotics, perhaps some wearable sensors as well. So for those ones, I think it's um, we, we collaboration with industry. It's it's starting to to grow. Of course, we, it's also an, a, a, it's also a field that it, it's 
at its early stage, that's also part of the reason, right? Because we so far we have been curiosity driven. So if we don't start to dia- to to have a dialogue with the, with industry, it's also very hard to find those applications. So I think it's also just part of the kind of um, time time history of of the field itself. Um, but I yeah. So I I think I think it's mostly applications. I, I I don't think we have. I think everything that we do it can be with time adapted to an industrial scale, um, materials, fabrication processes, of course, this will take time. But I think mo- yeah, mostly it's, uh, it's, it's, about, it's about market, it's about applications. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I think ego, ego is a fact for a researcher. I, I don't know many that don't have a big ego. Then if we need it or not, well, I think we need it uh, to a certain extent in the sense that we need to be people, uh, we need to be ambitious. Uh, I don't know if it's possible to be ambitious uh, without having a, a certain amount of ego. Um, perhaps it is, but I think sometimes the two things go together. But I think too much ego is definitely counterproductive um, because it, yeah, it doesn't allow for... I think if there is too much ego, people just look for marketing. They just look to make themselves look fancy. Uh, and it, this is not good for science. It's not good for relationship with colleagues. Uh, so I think we would rather need less ego rather than more ego. And if I ask you, what are the most important quality you have gained while working in academia? Something you have to maintain in your academic journey. Hmm. So for, for me personally... Something that I think it's um, it's very important for me, and I I kind of improved while working in academia, and I think it makes a big difference for success is collaboration. I think academia is one of those fields where well co- collaboration is not structured as in industry, where you are you have a, a clear role, and so you I mean you can't really choose. You have to collaborate with other people because that's just how industry is. In academia, people could do it all by themselves. I mean, sometimes we, as researchers, we tend to be one-man factory, right? We, we get the idea, we do the design, we do the fabrication, we do the assembling, we do the testing. Essentially, it's the whole, the whole chain. Um, so we could avoid collaborations, but I think really good research only comes from interaction, open, open interaction and collaboration. And for this, I think it's important to learn to not be protective. That's something that, I, like, again, I'm, I'm very happy of the, the lab I'm working in right now. It's a, it's a very healthy environment where people um, feel free to share their, idea, their ideas openly. They are not protective about their ideas. And this is just so helpful for science. Like bad ideas immediately have a very short life with this. And good ideas get just a lot of momentum. And you get feedback. You just refine your idea. You get better ones. Um, it's it's just fantastic how how productive it is to to be open um, and yeah open to to discuss and collaborate with other people. Yeah, I think this yeah, yeah I think this point is a really good point, and um, I think other people that get both cast mentioned this point. And but let's be honest, and uh, because of publish and perish, I think you have to publish your ideas, and and that's lead to this kind of secrecy and you. Try to be secretive about your ideas, and you won't share it. 
and that makes really not healthy vibes. So mm -hmm. do you think maybe publish or perish contribute in that? Because if you have a really good idea and you don't want to share it, do you think that's contribute in this kind of behavior that you don't want to share ideas and you try to be protective? Because you mentioned something I think very fascinating in the beginning. You had this kind of uh, trust and freedom and to share the ideas, to make it healthier for you, you feel, feel healthy. Well, yes, yes. Um, I, 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 I totally believe that yeah, Publish and Perish contributes to, to this kind of extreme competition that, is, that makes people um, very protective about their ideas. Uh, but I think it's also... I think it's also a matter of really how the academic environment is. I think it depends a lot on on leadership. Like, uh, I don't I don't know if I have a comprehensive answer. I can tell you a bit about my experience. Like, this is again something that I learned from uh, from um, uh, Herb Shea, who is the, the head of the lab where I where I now work. Um, so when we had this um, this kind of ambitious plan for for these stretchable pumps, we had a lot of discussions about uh, what we do. Because it took a long time. I mean, doing these uh, um, ambitious uh, projects, it's, it's long. It's not a six months time. For us, it was kind of 2.5 years. So 2.5 years, you don't publish anything. I mean, I could discuss with people in, in the team. That was fantastic. But we also wanted to, to get feedback from outside. So we, we started wondering, what shall we do? Shall we talk about it, even if it's not published? Or shall we just get super protective and don't do it? And that's, that's a big dilemma. So we decided to talk about it. And um, Herb was, uh, I mean, he, he, he was the one really pushing for it. And I, I'm super happy we did. So we, we went to conferences, we went to workshops. We didn't publish anything in proceedings, indeed, because that would have hindered our, um, the, the project was not done, and then this would have hindered future publications. But we decided to start sharing with people because we kind of thought, well, actually, uh, that coping was not, uh, we, we could gain more by getting people feedback than what we would risk by getting people coping us. Uh, and I think that proved to be a good strategy for us. We, we got fantastic feedback that helped us improve the project, solve some of the issues we had at the time. Uh, and, and actually, I, well, probably we were lucky, but we didn't have any issue of people knowing about it and coping us. Oh, I think that's really, yeah. I, I can say that's really maybe a rare story to have, maybe because I don't have so much experience like you, but this is really uh, what we want in science, that you share the idea and people respect maybe your ideas and don't make shitty action about it. But uh, and I yeah. think that's uh, something really good, very good example to be for. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. Probably it's a good story. There might even be uh, less, less good examples, but for us, I, I, I would do the same again. I, I would again talk about it, I would again, yeah. I think more people, honestly, more, I think most people, if they see you are developing something, they, they more think, okay, they are already doing it, let's do something different, rather than think, oh, let's copy those people and try to get fast. It's very, it's very hard, right? To get someone else's idea and, and copy it. it and it's most, most of the time it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. Absolutely, yeah. And so thanks for this story, yeah. And what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was a life changing for you? 
Well, I think, yeah, it's, I, I go again on the same topic, but the best advice I think probably was to kind of, yeah, trust other people, talk to them and yeah, they kind of, yeah, yes, talk, talk to others, be open, talk to others, be open to critics. Uh, yeah, don't be, don't be closed in your, in your little, um, in your little world and your little ego. Uh, be be ready to 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 face others people opinion and yeah and trust others trust trust other people that's wise uh, advice yeah and finally do you have final words to the robotics community oh well uh, i hope you find this um, this podcast interesting and uh, yeah let's keep pushing it i mean it's uh, I, i think it's an exciting it's an exciting field it's growing we'll have a bright future it's probably gonna change a lot compared to what it is right now It's going to be more kind of integrated in conventional robotics. Uh, but I, I believe most of the technologies that we are developing will help changing the world, will help have an impact. And so, yeah, I think we, we, are, we, are, we are a growing and exciting community. We should, we should keep it this way and make it even better. So thanks a lot, Beatriz. It was really informative and thoughtful discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you, Margot. It was my, all my pleasure. Thanks for having me.